0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you remain committed to the world you created. uh, And you remain committed to us as well. And um, we thank you that you remain committed to making heaven and earth as one and that you have begun that work in your son, Jesus Christ, reconciling all things in him and through him. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would catch the vision of your kingdom, that we might work with you, and that you might work through us to make this place as heaven. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open our ears to hear, you would open our eyes to see, And that you would be glorified in our worship of you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. The two stories that uh, Jesus tells us this morning, the stories that Kendra just read for us, are about his kingdom, and they're, they're short and, and, and similar in meaning. They are the stories of the mustard seed and the leaven. And although there are minor differences in emphasis between them, these two stories predict the same thing. The inevitable growth of God's kingdom on this planet, which we call Earth. God's kingdom will grow, and there is nothing and no one that can prevent it from doing so. In fact, it will grow so big that it will stretch to the ends of the earth. As the story of the mustard seed puts it, the kingdom of God will be like a tree that grows so large that the birds of the air, a common image for the nations of the world, the birds of the air will nest in its branches. People from every nation on earth will come to God and find protection and provision in his kingdom, the kingdom of God is like a tree in which all the nations will nest. The kingdom of God is also like a large lump of dough that is thoroughly leavened in every part. There is no place where God's kingdom will not reach. Every nook and cranny, every culture and community in this world will be infiltrated by the kingdom of God growing in its midst. The kingdom of God, therefore, is like a mighty tree and prevalent like leaven that infiltrates a lump of dough. But it was not always this way. Each of these parables tell of the humble beginnings of God's kingdom. The great and mighty tree began as a tiny mustard seed, and the lump of dough was thoroughly leavened by just a pinch of leaven in its warm folds. The kingdom of God has humble beginnings, but its end is destined to be great. It is an inspiring vision that Jesus provides for his kingdom on earth. The parables of the mustard seed and the leaven give confidence to all those who labor for God's kingdom in this world. And Jesus' disciples in particular needed this boost of confidence given the recent string of rejections that Jesus had suffered. Matthew 13 is flanked before and after by stories of Jesus being rejected. And it's hard not to imagine that the disciples are a bit discouraged and defeated by the rejection of the man they knew and worshipped as God. And it's in this context, this context of rejection, that Jesus tells the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Jesus is telling them that if, that if you labor for God's kingdom, you can rest in his assurance. That you, you labor for something that will not only be triumphant, but enduring. Your labor will not be in vain. It will be perfected by Christ. And by including the story of the leaven, he also anticipates the objection to this optimistic outlook for the kingdom's growth. He knew that looking around at immediate circumstances, the kingdom would often appear not to be advancing, but rather in full-on retreat. The kingdom of God may not appear to your eyes to be advancing in this world. Uh, but neither are you able to see leaven working its way through the dough. It advances in quiet and hidden ways, often indiscernible to the human eye. You may look around and, and feel a bleak sense of despair for the future of God's kingdom based on what you see in the church and in the culture of the United States, but what you don't see, what you don't see is the spread of the kingdom in places like Africa and Central South America. Central and South America, and the Middle East. If the kingdom appears to be shrinking here. There's no doubt that it's growing in those places. And in that, we should rejoice and find comfort and conviction to remain committed to the, to the kingdom in our corner of the globe. For the sake of those saints, that we might join with them in their work. The kingdom grows. We may not see it, but it grows And it will continue to grow until it is a tree large enough to host the nations and until the kingdom of God fills the entire earth and heaven and earth are made one again. Uh, But what is the kingdom of God? Lots of talk about the kingdom of God, but what is it and how does it spread? Jesus is optimistic about its growth. He encourages followers to participate in its spread. But what is it? That is a crucial question that needs to be answered. Lest we be found to be promoting anything other than God's kingdom. Or in a way that God discourages. Like Peter cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant in the garden of Gethsemane. What is the kingdom? How does it grow? In a way you could summarize the entire story of scripture in kingdom language. The Bible tells the story of a kingdom that was established, lost, and is now being recovered and restored. The story of the kingdom on earth begins in a place called Eden. Eden was a garden, a paradise. It was an outpost for the kingdom of God, a physical place where the spiritual and the physical coexisted and heaven and earth, overlapped. In Eden, God placed representatives who, bo- who bore in their very souls his royal image, as if his signet ring had been impressed upon their hearts. And these representatives were our first parents, the first human beings. And God set them in his kingdom outpost in order to expand his kingdom on earth. His kingdom was to begin in Eden and to spread all through the world like leaven and dough. And to make them successful in their charge, God gave them authority over everything he created. Everything answered to them. They were to plant and reap, create and build. And it was to be a kingdom in which God and humanity could dwell together in unity, peace and love. God's law would govern everything. And his laws would be cherished as life-giving by humanity who would live in joyful obedience It was to be a kingdom without strife or anxiety, loneliness, depression, or sickness. Humanity would be humble, grateful, and full of faith. Innocence would not be scorned or mocked, but sought after and preserved. But that vision of the kingdom was lost soon after it was established. Because humanity decided, we decided, that we would rather make a name for ourselves and build our own kingdoms than to serve God. It was a coup against the king. And so his kingdom project in this world was dealt a major blow. His image bearers rejected him. They broke his law and neglected their charge. And on their account, paradise was lost and the kingdom of God in this world did not advance beyond Eden. The creation, instead of flourishing under humanity's rule, was instead pressed into our service in order to feed our insatiable appetite for glory and our never-ending attempts to become gods, to become masters of the universe. On our watch, the earth has been treated carelessly and viciously, and God is not pleased. But God did not abandon his kingdom project on earth at that time. He remained king. And he remained committed to earth and to establishing his kingdom on earth. But in order to resume his kingdom project, he now had to first restore his image bearers. Human beings are God's chosen ones to rule over his kingdom on earth. And so he needed to reconcile us back to himself first, to show us the folly of our ways and to repair our relationship with him. And with humanity restored, God's kingdom project could then begin again in earnest. And so God pursued humanity in order to redeem us and to restore his kingdom project of turning earth into a paradise governed by his holy and just laws in which men and women live by faith and trust that he is good. His pursuit of humanity had humble beginnings, like a mustard seed or a pinch of leaven. He began with an elderly couple, Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah. And he told this hopeless couple that he was going to turn them into a nation. He was going to make their children as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's exactly what he did. Out of a barren woman and her husband, both of them elderly, God created a nation over which he was king. It was the nation of Israel. And their charge was much the same as the charge given to our first parents in Eden, to be fruitful and multiply, to be a blessing to the nations, to extend God's kingdom. They were to live in accordance with his laws and joyful obedience and faith. And God would would live with them in a tent that he instructed them to build. He would go with them wherever they went. And they were to expand his kingdom into all the world. Gathering people from every nation into a relationship with their creator and their king. But alas, these people proved as rebellious as our first parents. For their hearts were corrupted by sin like ours. And in their care, the kingdom of God did not advance, but was hoarded and guarded with great vigilance. And the reason for this is because they were making the same mistake that many evangelical Christians in the United States also make. They conflated the kingdom of God and their national interests, so that in their minds, a citizen of Israel was necessarily also a citizen of God's kingdom. They believed that God's favor was bestowed on them by virtue of their birth, not through faith. So that whatever national campaign they pursued, it must have borne divine blessing because after all, they were God's people, right? A country founded on his law and moral principles. But this was just nationalism and partisanship dressed up in holy garments. Their national flag was to them the armor of God because God and nation had become indistinguishable in their minds. And it was a situation that was good for no one. And not for God and not for them either. The greater the conflation between God and country within Israel, the more God sought to distance himself from them. In God's name, they were doing all manner of ungodly things. The people who were supposed to represent God to the world instead taught the world that they themselves are God. And God wanted nothing to do with their distortions. So he sent them into exile in order to teach them that he desires faith and not presumption from his people. Neither was it good for Israel because on account of their conflation of God and country, they missed God when he actually came in person to live in their midst. Jesus Christ came to them in order to restore God's people and resume his kingdom project on earth and they missed him. He spoke in ways and taught things that conflicted with their cultural sensibilities and agendas, so they partnered with the Romans to have him crucified. They missed him because he wasn't of their political persuasion. The king had come and they had him killed because he wasn't sufficiently Jewish for them. It didn't help, of course, that his predecessor, John the Baptist, was saying things like, don't presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Jesus and, and John before him came to remind the Jews that one entered the kingdom of God through faith and not by birth alone. A person was found to be a, a, a child of God a child of Abraham through faith and not through the tracing of a genealogy. That is the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 9 when he rather confusingly states that not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel? What's that mean? Oh, it means that not everyone who is born into Israel is a citizen of God's kingdom, a true Israelite. For it's by faith that one enters God's kingdom, and therefore entrance is available to Jew and Gentile alike. The kingdom of God is and always was intended to be multi ethnic. But the conflation of God and country confused that fact, and it produced terrible results for God's name and for the faith of the Jews. It created alienation from God, further alienation. And it bred an arrogance, a, a false presumption of God's favor in the hearts of the people living in that country. And it's important for us to recognize this conflation, to trace it throughout history and to call it out as dangerous because evangelical Christians in America are repeating it this day. How else do you explain the storming of the Capitol in defense of a deeply flawed political figure while carrying a Christian flag and Bible in hand? Recent polls reveal the sad fact that the vast majority, somewhere between 70 and 80% of evangelical Christians in America, particularly white evangelical Christians, have conflated the United States, even a single political party, with the kingdom of God. To be sure, there are varying levels of commitment to this conflation. There are the activists who promote actively this errant theology. Someone like Eric Metaxas, who on January 5th posted a picture of Egyptian Christian martyrs to his Twitter feed and asked Christians what price they are willing to pay to defend not Christ, but a political party. And there are those Christians more commonly found who merely believe at the gut level that America holds a privileged place among all the nations within the heart of God, as if the United States is the new Israel. America is a good and beautiful country. And I'm grateful, profoundly grateful to be a US citizen. But America is not God's country any more than any other nation in this world. To be sure to be sure, there are varying degrees of this conflation. But it has become apparent, though, that a conflation between God and country has taken root in the hearts of evangelical Christians. And because we belong to the group called Evangelical, after all, our denomination is called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, is it not? Because we belong to this group of Christians, it's our responsibility to call out this conflation of God and country, this conflation of a single party and and the kingdom of God as dangerous. It's not good for God. It's not good for America. And it is not good for the church. God is not pleased with the co-opting of his name to endorse a political party or a candidate in such actions as what took place on January 6th teach the country that the church and the God we worship endorse violent behavior in order to gain power. After all, that was his flag, right? The Christian flag being paraded across the Senate floor, wasn't it? But the Christian flag is not a symbol of America, and the American flag is not a symbol of Christianity, Confuse the two and this is what you end up with. You end up with prayers offered in Jesus's name via bullhorn by Christians who have broken into the Senate chamber while elected congressmen and women hide behind their chairs in the house chamber and make what they think might be their last phone call to their spouses. Jesus was associated with terror that day. And that is not glorifying to him. Jesus came to us full of grace and truth and forgiveness and love. He came to redeem us and to make us virtuous and holy, to begin his kingdom project of making heaven and earth as one. But why was his name preached in the Capitol on January 6th? Was it for the cause of holiness? No, it was invoked for the sake of a politician who tramples on the very concept. We've exchanged holiness for power and we're willing to accept all manner of ungodly things to get it because we think America is God's kingdom. Therefore, we need to be in power. But it is not God's kingdom. And even if it were, surely we must remember that we worship a crucified king. He won by dying, not, by, not through brute strength and violence. Listen, and you need to hear this. I'm not advocating for any political party, Republican or Democrat. What I am doing is I'm trying to get us to agree that the conflation of a political party and the kingdom of God is not, is not good for anyone. It proved disastrous for Israel and it will prove disastrous for the church in America as well. The kingdom of God does not map neatly onto any political party. It does not map neatly onto any one politician. The kingdom of God does not map neatly onto any one culture or, commun- or, or country. We must realize this or we will misrepresent God and be found fighting for something other than his kingdom. The political commentator David French recently wrote something that as Christians, we must always bear in mind in this highly politicized moment in our country. He writes that one of the enduring realities of the Christian gospel is that it does not conform to any specific human culture. Elements of biblical truth will contradict our cultures and call on us to transcend the culturally implanted desires and inclinations of our hearts. However, and this is important, one of the enduring temptations of the human heart is to conform the Christian gospel to our cultural inclinations, to find a way for the desires and inclinations of our hearts to find biblical sanction and rationalization. In other words, we are constantly trying to baptize our cultural and political beliefs in the gospel, but the nature of the gospel is that it will not cooperate. It always calls out and it always conflicts with bits and pieces of every culture Country, political party, and politician. The kingdom of God does not map neatly onto any country, but it is, to quote Jesus, in your midst. It is in every country and culture, growing like leaven, but it cannot be confused with any culture or country. A Christian living in the kingdom of God must therefore be willing to break with her culture or to contradict her party if she's going to be faithful to Christ and to his kingdom. Although we are Americans and should be proud to be so, I might add, yet we are first and foremost Christians and we have a higher allegiance than our country. Our highest allegiance is to a king and a kingdom. It is to Jesus Our allegiance to Jesus does not nullify our allegiance to country, but it does teach us where we must be willing with the courage of our convictions to break from it and let come to us what may. We do not seek power. We cannot seek power. As Christians, we've been charged to make heaven and earth as one again. Therefore, we seek to make God known. We seek to live faithfully and in joyful obedience to his law. We seek to reconcile men and women and children to their creator. We seek to restore respect for God's creation and to use the resources he has given us responsibly and sustainably because he created them. We seek to fight for human life, born and unborn. We seek to prioritize people over profit. We seek to treat all people with dignity because they still bear his image regardless of their sin. We seek peace and justice, but we also seek holiness and truth. We seek the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It's the work Jesus began when he walked amongst us 2,000 years ago and will return one day to complete, but we get the opportunity to start now. And we seek all of this through humility through love, through service, not force or the exercise of power. We must never forget that Jesus restored God's kingdom project on earth by reconciling us to God through his blood. The kingdom was founded by a lamb who was slain and he sends us into the world as sheep among wolves, not as wolves among sheep to likewise be spent for the kingdom to be slain even for the sake of his kingdom. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. He was silent before his accusers. And on the cross, he prayed for those who crucified him. The kingdom of God progresses in this world through the calm, humble proclamation of the grace, love, and truth of Jesus Christ. And in him, we can rest. And in him, we can hope because he has promised that the kingdom he has established in this world will grow. It will grow like the mustard seed and like the leaven. It will grow until all the nations find protection and provision in him and heaven and earth shall be one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.